If you'd like to, you can open up to Hebrews chapter 12 in your Bibles. And one of what is probably the greatest texts of exhortation to endurance to us as followers of Jesus that we have in the scriptures. And we're not going to look at it in great detail this morning, uh, but we're going to look at one area in particular. So Hebrews 12, uh, the beginning, quite well known. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We talk a lot at Church of the Cross about our desire to grow to maturity in Jesus, which we see as a lifelong process of moving from infancy to adulthood in the Christian life. And there is no doubt that to grow to maturity in Christ, we need to have endurance. That this is a long obedience in the same direction, quoting Peterson, quoting Nietzsche, um, for us as people that we're called to walk in this way. Um, I want to bring us to this phrase in this passage this morning as we think about this call to run with endurance of the race set before us. The race set before us. Because the reality is that well, I have no idea exactly where all of you are as you walk in here this morning, but we're all in different sets of circumstances and life situations. Some great, some very difficult. And it runs the gamut across that spectrum. And yet this call to run the race with endurance is a call that goes out to each and every one of us, whatever it is that we're walking in the midst of right now. And my contention that I want to set before you is that there are unspoken expectations and goals that we breathe in due to the context in which we live about what that race is supposed to look like. And so what I'd like to do is expose what I think are those unrealistic but yet so prevalent expectations about the race set before us and how that can diminish our call or our ability to walk with or to run with endurance and then look at what perhaps a more biblical understanding of those expectations of the race that is set before us actually are. So here's the standard picture of the race. A linear progression upward. From one goal to the next that meets our cultures or our subcultures expectations of success, which is to say all kinds of definitions of what success might be. You know, if, if you're one of those kind of urban gardeners, your definition of success is very different than somebody who works downtown every week and doesn't want to touch their lawn. Uh, or if you love to play video games, you know, your version of success is very different than somebody who loves to exercise or loves to read and to study. But the reality is there are all kinds of subcultures in which we find ourselves, and we choose the ones that we find ourselves in, that each have their own narrative of what the uh, linear progression from one step to the next means in order for life to be right and to be good. Yes, of course, in those understandings, we know that there will be setbacks, you know, along the way. And we know that there will be hardships, but we strive for that goal that we've sort of drunk by living in what we live in, swimming in the water that we swim in, of arriving at the top or at the extreme end or at the finish line of whatever it is that we've set about in life as most important. So we look for promotions. If it's, if it's performance at work, 
We look for happy and successful children if we've staked our version of success on parenting and our kids. We look for success in publishing um, or in various other areas. And in a sense, we believe these things ultimately will bring us the kind of rest and peace that we're looking for. All of us are shaped by this linear, linear progression of upward motion as a model of the race that we're called to run. And it's not all bad, of course. None of the things that I've just mentioned are necessarily bad. In fact, they can be quite little good, little g goods that are worthy of our effort. But there are major issues with this linear model of the race. Which again, I don't think any of us really thinks that it's going to be a straightforward linear model. But I guarantee you that we're all deeply shaped by that narrative in our consciousness and psyches. Many of you will know that I enjoy climbing mountains. I, used, I grew up in Colorado, that's my home state, and I do like to climb mountains. So I want to illustrate three major problems with this linear progression upward model of the race from mountain climbing. The first, false peaks. Some of you will have climbed mountains yourself, and you'll know that there are many false peaks as you're climbing a mountain. Uh, my kids and I were climbing a, good mount, a big mountain in Maine this summer, and this was the first time that they had to learn this lesson as we were hiking up the mountain, and you can see, we were above tree line, you can see the peak up there, and I warned them, I said, kids, this is going to be a false peak, I promise. And, uh, and yet, you still get up over that top, and you think, oh, there's more of the mountain to go, and you're surprised a little bit by it. But the reality is, the linear model of progression in life leads us to having many false peak experiences. Which is to say that when you get to the holy grail of whatever path that you are on, that linear path, it never ultimately delivers what it promised. And it leads to a disappointment and an emptiness. At least it doesn't scratch the ultimate itch of your heart. And so you progress onward, upward, and further. There's no amount of those things and those subcultures that I've listed earlier. There's no amount of promotion at work. There's no amount of money in the bank account. There's no amount of fame. There's no amount of good books that you've written and published that will ever be more than just a false peak if those things are being looked to to find ultimate fulfillment. So that's the danger of false peaks. The second, uh, while you're climbing up the peak, is just the, 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 the downfall of being overwhelmed. You look up and you go, that is a long ways up there. And I'm supposed to get from here to there. At least that's what the narrative that I'm swimming in tells me I'm supposed to do. And I just don't think that there's any way that I, I know who I am, and I know my weaknesses, and I know my shortcomings. I don't think I can get from here to there. And so we get crushed and overwhelmed by the magnitude of what we're looking at in front of us and all the steps that it will take to get between here and there. And it's often the case that we can be crushed by that in a very real way, which leads us to a strong, and this is a pervasive issue in our culture, and has become more and more so in the last 50 years, a strong and debilitating sense of anxiety that I just can't make it from here to there. Now, this is not a sermon about anxiety. If you wrestle and struggle with anxiety, we do not put a bullseye on your head and say you're not following Jesus faithfully. We know that's a much more complex and real problem. But the reality is, and we want to be a place that serves and supports you if this is a real struggle for you, but those extreme cases aside, the reality is when we live with this linear model of progression about what the race is supposed to be, it can cause real pervasive anxiety as we look up at what the tasks are ahead. 
and realize how difficult it is to get from where we are to where that narrative tells us that we're supposed to be. And many of us experience this, not infrequently. Many of us have to pray regularly that God would ground us in him in order for us not to have this, uh, this um, area of obstacle come about in our lives. So false peaks, being overwhelmed by the task, and the third thing in mountain climbing, <clears throat> if you watch the movie Everest, this will ring home, falling off the edge. Yes, uh, thankfully this has never happened to me or anybody I've been hiking with. Um, but there is obviously that danger that as you're walking on the crux of a route and looking down hundreds of feet on either side that you could slip and fall off the edge. And the parallel here to what I'm talking about in regards to the race in life is that as you're walking on this linear model of progression, inevitably, there will come times where we fall off, where we don't get the promotion, where we're rejected for that article that we submitted to the journal, where the person that we thought we would love forever decides they don't want to love us anymore and they walk away and we don't get married. Where somebody close to us that we care for deeply is diagnosed with a terminal illness. Those things are falling. They don't fit into the model of this linear upward progression. And like in mountain climbing, it can be cases where we fall off. And what happens in that case is more of a despair. I'm no longer on the course. I'm off the route. I'm not in the game anymore. My life's been sucked off the path, off the track. And now I just curl under the weight of these circumstances as everybody else seems to be going up the route just fine and not slipping. So if that's the prevailing view of the race that's set before us around us in our culture, what's the prevailing view of the race that's set before us in the biblical narrative? The author of Hebrews says, run the race that's set before you with endurance. And I would submit to you this morning that the race that's set before us, biblically speaking, as we look at biblical examples, is nonlinear and full of ups and downs and twists and turns. You turn back to Hebrews 11 and remember this great chapter and stories of these saints that have gone before us who form the great cloud of witnesses of chapter 12, verse 1, that are cheering us on and rooting us as we run the race. What is it that marks their lives? Some, uh, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. That doesn't sound like the upwardly mobile to me on a path of a linear progression from one step higher to the next. Far from it. Earlier in that chapter, we, we learned of Moses, born into privilege, born in Pharaoh's household with all of the world's uh, resources and pleasures and privileges at his fingertips. And yet by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Earlier in chapter 11, Abraham, by faith, obeyed 
when he was called to go out to a place that he was not, that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. He left everything. He left all that he had, all of his heritage and history, the generations of his family in earth. And he moves and lives in tents in the wilderness. And it says in verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised. So they didn't actually get to attain the promises. But he lived his life in a tent in the wilderness. But having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. That's the way that they lived. They, they made it clear that they were seeking a homeland, not the city here, but the city whose foundation is God and has been prepared for them. If you go back to the end of chapter 10, just before that, I won't do this too long. Recall the former days, verse 32, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Consider the apostles, Peter, and we read this in John 21, who's told by Jesus after he reinstates him with these three, do you love me? He says, when you're old, somebody will carry you to places that you don't want to go. You're not going to be on this linear, linear progression upward by the goals that you set in your life. Your life's literally going to be taken out of your hands, and you're going to be led places that you don't want to go. And it says, he said this to tell about what kind of death he's going to die. Your end will not be what you desire, but it will be the race that's set before you. Run it with endurance. Consider the Apostle Paul. Secure and promising as a young Israelite and Jew met by Jesus on the Damascus Road, life transformed and upside down. And what does it lead him to, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three? I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst and on and on. I keep going. That's not. Or think about Jesus, God's own son. Was his life a path along a linear progression, upward? by the values of the culture in which he lived. He descends to the lowest place and runs the race that was set before him with endurance. The author of Hebrews in verse 2 of chapter 12 says, Consider, look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Our Savior, our model of humanity, of what it is to be truly human, demonstrates for us that life is not what we're told it's supposed to be. Why? Or consider those in the Old Testament. Elijah, he was running from Jezebel, and he was moaning and complaining and said, I want to die. He had just done this great act of 
burning up the prophets of Baal in chapter 18, and it didn't change anything. He was done. Oris will begin next week a series in the book of Numbers. And thank you for all those smiles. Um, the people of God wandering. And so this is a prelude to that series, but wandering. Not on a linear path. Why? Why, why is this the way that God works? Because God's goal is not our goal. God's goal with our lives is to give us himself, his life, working in us. That's what God wants. We often want the things that are easy, the path of success. We often want the things that our world tells us are important, which again are good things, but they're secondary goods. God wants to give us the primary and only ultimate good of our lives, the only true peak. There is no other false peak when you get there. God wants to give us himself. His goal is different. And often God chooses to use very different means than what we would choose to use in order to accomplish that goal in our lives. And if we read our Bibles and we study the scriptures, we will be knocked over dead time and time again at the fact that this is not about one progression to the next on a path that we've determined about what success is. This is about God using twists and turns and suffering and pain to teach us that we need him and that we long for him above all things and that we can be his and know his life and his joy in fullness. Here and now, on whatever race, whatever path that he has set before us. You may be here this morning and be very unhappy about that path that you're on right now. And you may be here this morning and be a victim of injustice and be very unhappy about the path that you're on right now. And I want to say to you that there is a strong strand of biblical teaching that teaches us not to accept the race set before us with a kind of unthankful God for all those terrible things, but that teaches us to lament and to cry out. And when we open up the Psalms, we learn what it means to be human in the midst of the things that we protest. When people that we love get terminal cancer, like Jeff Quinn in this community a number of years ago, who died a year later, we protest before God and we cry out before Him. And I'm not suggesting that you are not called to do that in faith about those things that are unjust or unwanted in your life. But I am here saying that there is a possibility by faith opened up to you and to me in whatever circumstance that we find ourselves in for you to yield to the sovereignty and providence of God and for you to begin to walk with endurance on this race that has been set before you. When we begin to see that the path is not a linear progression upward, we can begin to embrace the twists and the turns that we experience in life. And instead of those twists and those turns causing us emptiness of the false peaks, the anxiety of the overwhelming task before us, or the despair of having fallen off or been taken off the path that we thought we were on, we can walk on them and begin not only to endure them, but to use them 
for God's glory and for our good. E. Stanley Jones is a missionary to India in the 19, early 20th century. And he wrote this about our moments of suffering and trial. You are to find your finest opportunity for witnessing through these very troubles. In other words, you are not to bear your calamities. You are to use them. You are to turn your trials to a testimony. might ask, well, how do we do this? And I'm going to close here, but just thinking about the second verse. I mean, the point is, you don't get to choose the race. And the freedom that can come from, from the fact, from liberation, from the linear model of progression, from one step to the next, the freedom that we're allowed as followers of Jesus, it sets us free to suddenly then realize that whatever the circumstances that you've walked in here with this morning, however much you love them or, or don't like them, you have an opportunity. You have, you're at no disadvantage in the race that God has set before you. God is present to you in the midst of those. We heard from Romans 8, but then all things, nothing can separate us. You've got the presence of God in those places. And you have every opportunity that anyone else in this room has to demonstrate the goodness and the power and the faithfulness of God in the midst of wherever it is that God has you right now. There is no disadvantage. But we have the freedom to run by looking at Jesus. By looking at the reward as they did in Hebrews 11. By considering that we have a better possession as they did in Hebrews 10. The only way that we can endure the twists and the turns, especially the ones that don't match up with our narrative, is to know that the narrative that we have set before us is a secondary narrative. And that the primary narrative in which we live, we have a promise and we have a treasure and we have an inheritance and we have a, a, a better possession and a lasting and eternal one. And to keep that in our sights in the midst of whatever it is that we're walking through now is the means by which we can run with endurance. Whatever it is, whatever track, Whatever twist, whatever turn, whatever fall off that God has set before us. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And then he goes on to talk about the disciplines of a father. Why does, he, why does a father discipline his children or a mother discipline her children? They don't like it, but it's because they have a greater good in them. They have a greater good in mind than their present comfort. And brothers and sisters in the faith, God has a greater good in them. And he often uses the most, to us, the most inscrutable means to produce that greater good in our lives. William Cowper lived in the 18th century and he was one of the best poets of his day. He experienced hardship and suffering from a very young age because his mother died in childbirth with his little brother. And that impacted him severely. In his 30s, he tried to commit suicide three times and was institutionalized in a mental hospital for a couple of years. He got out, he ended up living with a, a man and his wife in a village called Olney where there was a young curate named John Newton. And Cowper tied his, his poetic gifts with John Newton's gifts. 
And they began to write hymns together. The family that he was living with, the father of that family, died on a horseback ride by a freak accident. He lived with the woman basically for the rest of his life. He was rejected by the woman that he wanted to marry because she was his first cousin and her dad wasn't happy about that. But uh, this was a man who knew deep heartache, who lived in many times with what we would call today clinical depression and struggle. I was... Sorry, this, gets, this moves me, because this summer I was reflecting on a situation of real pain and heartache with somebody very tangentially connected to this community whose daughter was dying. And it was then that I stumbled back again, not for the first time, but back again on these words of Cowper's that he penned, called light shining in the darkness, or sometimes known as God moves in a mysterious way. We can have tremendous encouragement. Whatever the race that God has put in front of you, I want these words to just be an encouragement to you as I close. Remember who wrote them. He didn't write these as an outsider to twists and turns and to falling off. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, faith sees a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. I hope those words encourage you to run the race that God has set before you, whatever that entails, with endurance, seeing the smiling face of God through whatever clouds that you're living in and clinging to his promises to finish the good work that he began in you and to bring you to your eternal rest. Amen.